0: All right. I got up here quicker than usual. Okay. Um, we're back in our, our sermon series. We're looking at 1 John uh, today and next week. This is part of our uh, Little Books Big Message sermon series where we're going through some of the smaller books of the, uh, the Bible that tend to get overlooked because they're, well, they're little, and we're looking at them, and, and one of the things that I think has impressed me, and, and I know some of you because we've talked about it uh, in the last couple weeks, is that these books do pack a lot of punch. They do have a lot of message. They have a lot to offer. Uh, the authors of these books managed to say quite a bit uh, in a little bit of space. Now, now, First John is not as small as some of the others. And so I didn't, we didn't read it all here today like we have been with some of the others. Uh, but 2 John and 3 John get very small, but it didn't make sense to do 2 John and 3 John without 1 John. So it's kind of sneaking in through the back door here into this series on uh, little letters with a big uh, message. You know, one of the things that uh, I came across as I was kind of getting ready for this study on 1 John, where 1 John going to talk a lot about how we love each other, how we connect to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, the real two themes that run through First John are that we need to be obedient and we need to love each other. Uh, and it's not clear where one of those ends and the other one begins. There's a lot of overlap and intertwining of those two ideas in John's writing. Uh, and, and as I was looking into that, one of the things I came across is something called the Hawthorne Effect. I don't know if you've heard of the Hawthorne Effect. Uh, it was one of it was the result of some studies and, hu- and experiments on human behavior uh, done in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, it was done at the Hawthorne Western Electric Plant up in, uh, where was it at? In, oh, I don't have it in my notes, that's why I don't know it. Uh, up, I think it's in Chicago or Detroit. Philadelphia. It was in Philadelphia. Uh, it's right there, that's where it is. Uh, In this facility, they had thousands of workers producing all kinds of things. And uh, during the war, it would go on to produce radar for planes and things of that nature. But they're constantly trying to improve their production. They're trying to uh, improve output. And so one of the things that they did is a series of experiments on humans to see what would get the most out of the employees there. And so the first one they did was what they called the illumination exercises. And so they took some of the different workers that were uh, making coils and and they put them in different settings and they changed how bright the lights were to see what is the perfect lighting uh, to produce the most coils per hour per worker. uh, And then we can get the most coils done by knowing the right amount of lighting. Uh, And so they had one group where they, they had normal lighting, just the same amount of light that they always had. The next group, they turned the lights up quite a bit And the other group was a little bit darker. I don't know how they thought that might help, uh, but they tried that too. Uh, And so after a a certain amount of time, they went back and they they went. And sure enough, the group with brighter lights had their productivity go way up. And then they went at the group that, that had the same lighting as they'd always had. And it turns out that not changing the lights made their productivity go way up. And then they went to the other group where they had turned the lights down, and they found out that by turning the lights down, their productivity had gone way up. And the researchers went, what is going on here? And so they tried another set of experiments where they got people together that were sometimes working six days a week and for 10 to 12 hours a day. Worker conditions were very different in the 20s and 30s. Um, They had very few breaks, very few lunch breaks. And they got them together and they said, Hey, what if we gave people more time to relax? Would it actually help them focus more? Would it give them more ability uh, to actually produce more? Uh, And so they got a group that were working on creating relays that were part of some machines that they were doing there. And they, they let them change their breaks. They let them change how many days a week they worked. Uh, They changed uh, their lunch hour length, all of these things to improve their work life balance their sanity and their, their time. And then they went back at the end, and no matter how, ver- how many variables they tweaked, the productivity kept increasing in all of these different studies. And so they got together and said, what is going on? And so out of the Hawthorne uh, project, they came up with what's now today called the Hawthorne effect. And the Hawthorne effect shows, states that broadly, when you tell someone you're watching them, it changes their behavior. At the beginning of all of these studies, they told the people, we're doing an experiment on you to see if it increases your productivity. And by telling people, we're watching and we're monitoring you, productivity skyrocketed no matter what they did to change the dynamics. What the Hawthorne effect in many cases has come to show is when we give people our attention, their productivity goes up. When we tell people we care about what they're doing or that we're measuring it, their productivity goes up. It improves. There is something about shining the light of our attention on somebody that makes them better at what they're doing and how they're doing it. When we shine the light of our affection on people, it changes them even more dramatically. When we're giving attention with affection, it brings not only an increase in productivity, but an increase in all of the the good feelings that come from someone caring about you. And so when we look at 1 John, he has this connection between uh, God's light and the light we live in and the way that we shine light on, on others. And so I want to read uh, a lot of 1 John 1 and 2, and I want you to be listening for how John is talking about presence. Okay, but think about this, because one of the things he's going to talk is how when we come into God's presence, we should then change how we come into the presence of others. If we are in God's presence, the other side of that is that we will become people who are fellowshipping the others who are in God's presence. If we are in God's light, we should be giving His light to others through relationship, through fellowship, and through attention. And, and what I'm gonna be kind of suggesting throughout this lesson today, and, and I wanna give it to you in, in, up front, so that you can be listening for it in the text and seeing it as we're kind of going through some of this, is that when we talk about loving one another and being affectionate towards one another and having fellowship with one another, um, those things are very foreign to our world. And we tend to think about it in terms of just feelings that I feel good towards you and you feel good towards me. And so we've, we've done something there. But in reality, at the core, the very beginning of fellowship is giving each other our attention, is giving each other our presence physically, relationally. And next week, as we get into the later chapters of John, he's gonna really raise the bar to be more than just presence, that we're gonna have to really make a difference in one another's lives. But as we enter into this idea today, I really wanna challenge you to be thinking about how our world calls us and pushes us towards isolation and distraction. The isolation and distraction from one another. And yet, 1 John is, is begging us to resist isolation and distraction and receive the presence of God, and give our presence to others. Here's how John talks about that and living in God's presence. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He says, we're proclaiming to you what we saw in Jesus, what we heard in Jesus, what we touched in Jesus. And this is John who touched the hands This is John who touched the bread that was served. This is John that heard the sermons and heard the teachings. And he now proclaims them for what purpose? Fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. That that we might be moved from isolation to community as a result of hearing what he's saying about what he got from Jesus. We always think about the purification from the sin that comes with the blood, but being in the light brings us fellowship in John's letter first. That the community is a vital part of Christian life. That the one anotherness that you and I give to each other is is priority wise in John's letter comes up before he gets to sins being removed. If we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us we're okay with this one any perfect people in the room okay Uh, I think sometimes people used to want to really look perfect. We're a kind of place that checks our halos at the door a little bit and comes in here with our real selves. John likes that. He wants more of that in the church. And he keeps going. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's a big call. Jesus, we all just covered how much we're not perfect, Jesus was. Jesus lived a different kind of life than you and I do. And John's saying, listen, if you're going to be in him, Jesus took your sins away. Now you've got to start obeying the commands and living like Jesus did. And, he, and the question has to be asked, John, what does that look like? What does it look like and i think we get this idea that, that it's all about the purification from sins and it's all about the staying out of the bad stuff and don't go to the dark places late at night because nothing good happens there those are the things my parents taught me right and that that's what living like jesus looks like but john keeps writing i'm not writing you a new command but an old one which you have had since the beginning This old command is the message you have heard. Yes, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What does that look like? Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. There is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not go where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. If I was to get up here and just say, there are so many people in our world today who are blinded by darkness. We would not think about people who are struggling in their relationships with their brothers and sisters in Christ, but John does. For him, the thing that makes you stumble is not the temptations of the world and sexual immorality that's there in the obedience piece that's there. But what he really sees is what makes us stumble is we stumble when we struggle in our relationships with one another. But when we love each other, we live in the light as he is in the light. That's what living like Jesus did looks like for John. It's this bonding of those who are disciples of Jesus with one another. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. This is in your text. It's probably offset in kind of a weird way. It's because it's, a, it's really a poem that he drops in here, uh, which is why he really repeats the same groups and the same instructions uh, multiple times for multiple people. It sounds weird to read out loud, so you can read it on your own if you want to. And we're skipping down to verse 15. Uh, Do not love the world or anything in the world, If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. See how this presence idea is moving? There are some within the church who have become antichrist. We think about this in the like movie theater, Hollywood, uh, Revelation kind of way, that there is one antichrist coming, but in, in John, there's many that are coming, and they're not coming to attack the church, they're coming out of the church, and they're leaving the church. And what they're doing is they're bringing division into the church, and they're they're leaving the church because they're not part of it, and they're bringing this evil element into the body of Jesus. And it's all rooted in whether or not they are building relationships and being obedient to the word and loving one another, or whether or not they are bringing hatred into the church. And those who bring hatred move out of the presence of the church, and that's how you know who they are. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. As you see that you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all these things, and as that anointing is real and not counterfeit, just as He taught you, remain in Him. Stay in God's presence, John writes. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, it's a lot of text, but we're going to go through chunks of these little letters. It's one of the nice things about how small they are is we can move through a lot of them. And you see as John is writing, again, this intertwining of as you come into God's presence, you fellowship with others. As you are obedient, you will love one another, and anyone who hates the other is clearly not being obedient, and God is not in them, and they're not in His presence. And so there's this movement of people in and out of God's presence, and in and out of the presence and relationships with those who are in the body of Christ. And there is this idea for John that as God who is the light shines on us, we as his disciples and who are in him should shine our light on others. And the first way we do that is by shining the light of our attention and affection into the lives of others around us. I mentioned earlier that the two real temptations that we have in our life today are for isolation and distraction. Uh, Over and over again, we hear people in this church and in other places say, I want to have better and stronger relationships with other people. And we say, well, why don't you you go spend time with them? And they say, I don't have time. I don't have time to build bridges into other people's lives. I don't have time to build connection into other people's lives. Um, well, Well, what do you want? I just want like microwave friendship. Do we have any microwave friendships available? Um, It doesn't work that way. And because we don't have the time and the energy and the effort to pour into our other relationships, we have this gap where we're lonely and we wish we weren't. And and so we fill it up with all kinds of other things that drain our time while not doing the work of building the relationships with other people. Easy way out of this, this is, by the way, the theme of the ladies' retreat coming up next month in September. Uh, and the men's retreat, it's not the theme, but it is a place where you can go meet people and spend time having fun and, and talking about faith and God. Um, sign up for those retreats if you're looking for a place to build connections and relationships. Uh, it is a great place to start and to do that. There are opportunities all the time to build relationships with people, but it's being willing to take the actual steps to pick up the phone and call someone, to send someone a text that you haven't talked to in a long time, to go out for coffee, to say, hey, I want to go somewhere and do a service project, will you come with me? And doing the work of bringing other people with you in life in a way that builds relationships and pushes back against the isolation that is just really weighing on so many of us today. And the second thing that really pushes against community and relationship is distraction. And I don't have to tell you where the biggest distractions in life come from today. In a large scale, they come from work. uh, They come from the responsibilities of extracurricular activities with our kids and the busyness of all the things going on. But but in the micro moments, uh, we are so distracted by our phones, by Netflix, by social media, by the constant bzzz. that goes on that that keeps us from staying engaged with the people who are in front of us, the people who are with us, the people who live in our homes and work with us and go out to eat with us and sit at tables with us, uh, often receive less attention than the app that buzzes and and puts a screen in between our eyes and their eyes. Uh, Our world is filled with all kinds of distractions But being in God's light should cause us to push against the isolation and the distraction. Being in God's light and being in his presence should send us to give our presence to others and give them the gift of our attention. We should shine our attention on them in the way that God shines his on us. Jesus did this all the time. It's one of the most incredible things as you go look at at all of the different times that Jesus has interactions with people. And and the things that that tried to distract Jesus were all over the place. Crowds would be mobbing him all the time. Uh, Pharisees would be questioning him. Apostles would be disappointing him. All of these things are going on. And yet over and over again, he turns his attention directly to the person who needs it in that moment. And over and over again, people that receive Jesus' attention, are it changes their lives. The, The moment that Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in a tree and says, Zacchaeus, I know you're a tax collector. I know that you're here for the spectacle. I know that the people hate you. I want to go have dinner at your house, changes that man's life. The times that the, the children are running at Jesus in the crowd and the apostles are, are trying to shoo them away. And, and Jesus says, listen, they're not, I'm not more important than them. In fact, neither are you. And if you want to be, be part of my kingdom, you have to become like these ones you're shooing away. And then Jesus pours his attention into these children. That's a thing that no one else in that moment would have done. The religious leaders of Jesus' day considered children as someone they will talk to later, like when they're older later. They weren't to be distracted with the little ones. And yet Jesus gives them his attention. Jesus sees the tax collectors. He sees the sinners. He sees the sick. And he's not bothered by them. He gives them his full attention, and they leave transformed by that interaction. Uh, Jesus sees the apostles and the disciples and and the incredible gift that He gives them as they are traveling is not so much, it is that they get to see the wonders, they get to see the miracles, they get to see the walking on water and all of those things, but it's often those moments that left them confused. But think about what it's like for Jesus to give the parable of the sowers for the first time in history. And after the parable of the sower, the crowd is like, man, this is a tough teaching. And then Jesus turns to the apostles and he gives them his attention as he says, hey, here's what it means. With those to ear, who have ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. With those who can, can understand this, I'm going to pour extra into you group, this group, my apostles and my disciples, so that you can later learn to give your attention and shine your light on others and change them. But it's all done through presence. It's all done through time. It's all done through relationship. And this isn't just a Christian teaching. This is wired into the way that we are made. I came across a a story this week that that I just fell in love with, and I want to share with you today, that demonstrates the power of attention and relationship that's given to even strangers and how it can change a life. The story of Pierre Freelix. Uh, Last spring, during the NBA Western Conference quarterfinals game between the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Memphis Grizzlies, uh, a woman jumped onto the court... And her first foot touched the court, and before her second one could, a man flew out of nowhere and bear-hugged her to the ground. Two other people jumped on her, and they had her off the court in under 10 seconds. From the moment she stepped forward to off the court was 10 seconds. It's an incredibly uh, fast thing. Uh, The man who did that was a guy named Pierre Freelix. Uh, you may have, remember more, uh, not this game, but two games before this, another woman rushed onto the court uh, and tried to super glue her hand to the basketball court to interrupt the game. Um, they got her off pretty quickly too. Glue dries slower than that, but it, it didn't work. Um, these were all activists that were part of an animal rights group that were mad at Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, He and one of the the businesses and farms that he owned had just killed millions of chickens to prevent a bird flu outbreak um, And they wanted to protest this and so they were trying to interrupt all of his basketball team's playoff games And they were doing it there and in Memphis And So they'd increased security to try and prevent this from from happening and make sure everyone stayed safe and nothing happened And and part of that was that when she moved onto the court the gentleman uh, who you can see in this top photo is already flying to grab her, is Pierre Freelix. Uh, He got uh, tons of attention and fame in the 24 hours after this. Interview requests from all kinds of places, news reports crediting him uh, with an incredibly fast response. And what everyone wanted to know is where did he come from to get her that quickly? But the more interesting question is not where did he come from in that moment, but what is the story that took him from where he started as a poor, uh, a poor boy growing up in, in the projects of Chicago to being there on the court in that moment? Uh, he turned down in the days after this many TV requests. It was months later before he agreed to finally do an interview uh, with, with a journalist who got the whole story. And the story is incredible, and it is, illustrates the power of someone giving you the gift of relationship. Uh, Pierre grew up uh, in Chicago. He grew up uh, in the Ellis Tower uh, projects with 2 hardworking parents uh, doing everything they could to just make ends meet. Uh, he grew up there in a, in a city that was really starting to become a real drug-riddled uh, area, lots of gang activity. But when he was seven years old, his parents scraped together and they bought him a bike. And they gave him the bike and they said, listen, we've got to be at work. When we're at work, you can ride it, but don't ever leave the parking lot. Because in this neighborhood, one of the unwritten rules of the neighborhood is if someone is in the parking lot, whether adults are there or not, you leave them alone. That's a safe space for kids. But if you leave the parking lot, uh, the rules were off. And one day, Pierre and his friends decided they would go to the park. And when they went to the park, they got there. Uh, And he was there, rode his bike to show off to some other kids. Uh, And when he got there, uh, his friends scattered, and he didn't see the threat coming behind him, and a gun was placed at the back of his head. It's a seven-year-old boy, and in that moment, uh, the, the voice said, leave the bike, don't turn around, walk away, count to 20, and leave. And he walked away and counted to 20, turned around, and his bike was gone. But for the next several weeks, he was terrified to go outside, and, and he was afraid of everything. And his parents, who had been considering getting out of this neighborhood for years, decided it was time to move up to, with family to Minneapolis. And so they leave Chicago, and they go to Minneapolis. And when he gets there, he starts hanging out in, in, in the hospitality house, a Christian ministry that was there to give kids uh, in Minneapolis a safe place to go and, uh, and be, spor- be formed spiritually and relationally and connected, a place of peace. And he spent a lot of time there and made friends in this group. And one of his friends' favorite things to do as they became young teenagers uh, was to take the bus downtown to where the hotels were and the basketball arena was, and they would call the hotels, the nice ones around the arena. And they wanted to find out where the NBA players, the visiting teams, were staying and go try and get autographs. So they'd call these hotels, uh, and they learned, if you ask, is Michael Jordan there, Uh, that the hotel staff knew to say no, or Michael Jordan checked in under a fake name and uh, and you couldn't guess what it was. So they would call and ask things like, "Uh, is Steve Kerr there? And they would say, yeah, and they'd patch him right through because Steve Kerr's a bigger deal today than he was when he played with Michael Jordan and they'd get Steve Kerr. Now they didn't actually want to talk to Steve Kerr, but that's how they knew where Michael Jordan was. So they'd sneak down to the hotel lobbies and start trying to get autographs and meet the players and catch them going in and out. And then from time to time, uh, they'd save up and they'd go buy one ticket to the game because that's all they could afford. And one of them would go in and give the ticket at the gate and they'd go in and they'd, they'd go find the, the loading doors and they'd crack them open and the other five of them, six of them, seven would sneak in. And they'd go walk all around the arena and enjoy the arena and the environment. And they were smart enough that they knew not to go try and get seats in the first half when the ticket takers were still standing at the entrances of the arena. They'd wait till halftime. Uh, And they'd get in, and they'd they'd go find the empty seats, and they'd watch the second halves of the games. And they had such a confidence about them that they belonged, that a lot of security assumed that they were one of the players' kids or friends, or that they belonged there, season ticket holders of some kind. Uh, But at one point, security figured out what was going on. And so on that day, the boys opened the door, started going up the stairs to the arena, and they looked up, and there were two security guards in front of them. And they looked behind them, and there were two security guards at the door. So they knew that it, their, their gig was up. Uh, the security guards took them to the loading area where a group of police officers were waiting for them. One of the police officers was uh, a no-nonsense uh, police officer who had been doing this for years, been running security at the Target Center uh, where the Timberwolves played for many years. Uh, and as they walk up to Bob Go- Godders, he looks at the boys and he says, are these the kids Are these the kids? And these 16-year-olds know, they just know they're going to jail. They know that they're going to get kicked out and banned from the arena for life. They know that their parents are going to get called and they're going to get in just a world of trouble. And in this long moment, they're playing through every possible scenario about how bad everything in their life is about to go. When all of a sudden, Bob Goders reaches into his blazer and he pulls out a stack of tickets. And he starts handing one to each of the boys. He says, listen, stop breaking into the arena. Stop getting into trouble. Stop doing things around here that you're not supposed to be doing. When you want to watch a game, you call me. I'll get you tickets. And for the next several years, anytime they wanted to watch a game and could get down there, they'd call uh, this police officer. And anytime they called him, he'd have tickets ready for them. After several years, when the boys turned eighteen, he got three of them jobs working at the Target Center, uh, protecting the arena from people sneaking in and breaking in like they'd been doing a few years ago. <laughs> and they're now working as security and, and working security there. If you're not if you're one of the, the higher ups, ups, you can make a living on it. But for uh, For Pierre, it's one of about five or six jobs he's working to try and make ends meet. So he's working at the Target Center. He works as a special ed teacher uh, for Minneapolis Public Schools. He's uh, working security at Macy's, catching shoplifters. Uh, And in the process of doing this, uh, he's just continuing to try and stay out of trouble and continuing to try and take care of his two boys and his family. And he does this for 20 years. During those 20 years, he would eventually get promoted to being the, the guy that was working security of the away team benches. And so he doesn't have to prank call their rooms anymore to find out where they are. He's providing security to them, and they know him. When players would sh- show up in Minneapolis, they would greet Pierre by name. Kobe knew who he was, and he would talk about how incredible it was to go from the kid in the hotel lobby to the guy protecting them in the arena. And eventually he got moved to the home bench. And during this time when these, these activists were trying to get to Glenn Taylor uh, about the, the chicken stuff, Um, he gets promoted to personal security for the owner of the team. And after he responded so quickly, because before the game, he'd been studying pictures of people that were in this group, and he recognized this woman when she came in. And he and other security guards had already said, we've got to wait for her to move, but as soon as she does. And as soon as she did, he did. And he tackled her and and took her down. And today, he is now full-time security for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And he travels with the team, and he goes to hotels with the teams. And, uh, in fact, he'll, December 28th, they're playing here in Oklahoma City. He'll be here in the city working security to take care of the owner and the players that he used to sneak into arenas to try and be close to. He was able to make that his only job. It's his career now. He still volunteers in special ed in Minneapolis schools, but he's able to let the other jobs go and spend more time with his boys. All of this happened because Bob Getters... Uh, in that moment had a choice, and the easy choice, the easy choice is to say, you guys broke in here, I'm going to take you in and arrest you and book you. The easy choice is to say, not only am I kicking you out, I'm going to hold you here until your parents come pick you up, and you're going to have the consequences. The hard choice is the one he took. The hard choice is to say, I'm going to invest in you guys by having a relationship with you, and when you tell some teenage boys, call me anytime you want tickets to a basketball game, you're making a pretty big relational commitment to them. <laughs> but he does it. And when they became young adults, he helped them get jobs there. And he helped them to move uh, up the ranks of security. And he built this relationship with these boys over years that he didn't have any uh, responsibility to do it. But he did. These boys can divide their lives into the time before that moment and the time after because that moment set them on a course that's gone in very different directions. And so when people would ask, man, where did that guy come from to tackle that woman who was illegally getting onto the court? Well, it's a much more interesting question than they knew they were asking. There's so many people, when you read the New Testament, have that kind of a reaction to being in Jesus' presence. That, that just like our calendars today are divided into B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after, there is many people in the pages of the New Testament that, that met Jesus for a short period of time but could divide their life into before Christ and after, based on short interactions. A woman caught in adultery, don't you know that her life was never the same again after she came into the presence of Jesus Christ? The woman at the well, her life was never the same again because for a day or two, she got to come into the presence of Jesus Christ. Zacchaeus' life is changed. Peter's life is changed. The the fishermen that were out fishing one day, and he says, try the nets on the other side. Their lives are changed forever because they met and came into the presence of this man, Jesus. And John recognizes that. Why? Because he's one of the ones whose life was changed by being in the presence of Jesus. And so he starts his letter by saying, listen, I saw him with my eyes, I touched him with my hands, I heard him with my ears, and it changed me. And so now I've got to tell you about it so it can change you. And he begins giving the blessing of the light of God forward, and he does it by giving people the time and the relationship and the story in the community, and the fellowship. He calls us to be obedient to God's Word. Of course we should be. But in addition to obedience, we must choose to have relationship with God's people as a gift that we give, as an, as an acknowledgement of the gift of God's presence that's given to us. As you receive God's light, you give your light to others over and over again he's going to talk about loving your brothers and sisters about community about fellowship about one anotherness about all of these things Uh, and so we need ways to do that now here's the thing we are bogged down in the world that says choose isolation and distraction Um, so we have a kind of fun activity for for northwest that you can kind of go well what's the first thing that i can do uh, because if I just tell you, call someone and hang out, you're just going to be like, oh, I don't know who to do that with. Uh, maybe I'll do, uh, y- maybe you call your spouse and go out to coffee and then congratulate yourself, right? Don't do that. Uh, go to the next slide here. This is our, our bingo card, all right? Uh, these are available. We've got a lot of them. We have enough for all of you. Uh, we don't have enough for all of you because we don't trust all of you to pick one up. Is actually the truth. But you should. Uh, we've got these bingo cards. And so here's some of the things that are on here. Uh, visit a, a shut-in with someone who's older than you. And by older, we usually mean like a decade older, right? Not, not is your birthday the day before mine? Okay, that, you've done nothing impressive there. Uh, make art with someone who is new to you that you don't know well. Say, hey, can we get together and color? Can we get together and paint? Can we get together and create? Uh, walk in the park with someone who is older than you. Play video games with someone outside your circle. Uh, That might involve someone teaching you how to play video games, okay? That one is there. Get coffee with someone who's older. Uh, Pull weeds at a shut-ins home with someone who is new to you. So all of these have kind of two elements, an activity and a description of a person you might do it with. If you kind of move some of them around and flex some of them and and you're like, I kind of did it a little bit differently. We're not going to like you don't fail this class. okay? there's only winning if you go and meet someone and do something. Uh, We want to challenge you. Grab one of these bingo cards and choose a, a line of five. Uh, that you do uh, with yourself or with your family, with other members of this church, that you get out of your comfort zone and you work on getting a a love card bingo. This is our first John challenge for the month. Uh, Figure out a way to do this. And some of the things you can do here, some of the things have to be done somewhere else, but we, we really want you to do it to really actually get out of your comfort zone and connect with people, to do the kinds of things that John is challenging Christians to do. By shining your presence on other people, it's going to be an incredible blessing to them. And if they shine their presence back to you, guess what? You receive the blessing from them. And by doing it with people that you don't automatically do it with, you're reminded that you're doing this out of the giftedness that God gives you, you're gifting it to someone else. It is a challenge. So grab your bingo card on the way out. We, can't, we haven't figured out yet if there's, we, we want to do prizes. We can't figure out what a prize would be that would be really good and uh, not crazy expensive. Um, so if you do it and you bring it back, we'll figure out some kind of a prize. If you have an idea for a prize, let us know. Maybe we'll do that. If you black out the whole card, I'll take you out to eat, Black out the whole card by Christmas. I'll take you out to eat it vast at the top of the Devon Tower. OK, that would be incredible. Um, I would love for someone to hold me to that. That'd be great. Um, get in this. If you can do five things, do five things. If you can do two things, do two things. If you can do all of them, great lunch with me, okay? So there's the challenge. But, but really, give someone the gift of your presence. Change someone's life. There's an opportunity here for, for what you pour into someone else's life for a, an hour or two hours to be a moment that their life might have a before that and an after that, that God might produce something in what you gift him that's so much more than you could ask or imagine. God does incredible things when we do little acts of faithfulness. Uh, If you're here this morning and you need to respond to the gospel, and the gospel is this, that, that in a world of brokenness, Jesus died so that he can make you whole, so that you can go back in and get more broken people out of the world. And if you need to respond to that gospel invitation today to come out of the brokenness and into the wholeness so that you can be part of the kingdom, uh, come forward this morning as we stand and sing.